I'm Nia Clark, and this is Dreams of Black Wall Street. in Archer at the Archer Community Center at the Rosewood Family Reunion. Today is the 22nd of July of 2017. And we are interviewing a very fine lady, Miss Angela A. Goins, one of the family names in Rosewood. Angela, it's a pleasure to have a chance to sit and talk with you today. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much. And I'd like to know your relationship to the early family members, going back to the goings when they had the, steel, the uh, turpentine steel and other things down in Rosewood. Okay. Well, my relationship will be with, well, my great-grandfather, uh, Edmund, and his brother. Edmund Goins. Uh, Martin started uh -huh. the uh, the turpentine business in Rosewood. They originally had the uh, Goins brothers in North Carolina, but when the turpentine uh, industry kind of went down, they, they went to, uh, migrated to Rosewood, Florida. Where were they in North Carolina? Uh, Southern Pines. In Southern Pines, North a Carolina? Yes, actually, well, the, the land where Fort Bragg is on, part of it was their land. I see. Mm -hmm. And so they, they migrated to Florida. What year was that, you think? I believe it was the beginning of 1900, uh, uh, real close to 1900. I'm not mm -hmm. sure exactly what year. They were years. here before 1924. I mean, 1824. Oh, that could possibly be. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so the, the, the goings mm -hmm. were here. And could you tell us a little bit about they have a, a nice graveyard and everything in North Carolina? Yes, they have to commemorate them. Going Cemetery. Uh, we've been there a few times when we have our uh, Goins Walden's reunions. Uh huh. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. And where is that located? That's on the uh, Fort Bragg property. At Fort Bragg property mm -hmm. in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Uh, I'm not sure if it's. It's somewhere in between the two. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, I guess it's so large. It is. And I'm not area. sure if you've left Southern Pines and headed into Fayetteville or what. Uh -huh. <laughs> and it's the 82nd Airborne Division is also in uh, Fayetteville. Yes. Okay. Okay. Thank you so mm -hmm. much. And now they migrated, you said, to Florida. Now, what really brought them into Florida? My understanding was just because the uh, turpentine was uh, running out, the timber trees or something were running out in, in North Carolina. Uh -huh. So they were headed to Florida to start it up there. And started in Florida. Mm -hmm. And so they had nobody here in, in the area of Florida to direct them. They just had to find their way. <laughs> <laughs> that would be my guess. I'm yes, not sure. <laughs> yes, yes. And then once they got here, where did they uh, land? They landed in Rosewood. Uh -huh. Was mm -hmm. the town called Rosewood at that time? Now that I don't know. I have, I have, I have no idea. Well, I was told it was known as Who's Town. Who's Town. Mm -hmm. They didn't know who it belonged to. Uh -huh. They just sort of set up a settlement there. Mm -hmm. And then after a while, they noticed the trees 
uh, the Rosewood trees and, the, and so forth, and the name eventually became known as Rosewood. Hmm. But in the beginning, it did not have a name. <laughs> That's good to know. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. <laughs> so after they got here, uh, who came in the, was it a caravan or how did they come? Again, that I don't know. Mm -hmm. Okay, so once they got here, uh, then they started the turpentine business in Florida. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, they had to have some money and a means of getting things done to do that. Yes, they they, they pretty well off. from Angela Goines. If you've listened to this season from the beginning, she should be a familiar voice. We first heard from her in episode one of this season. She's a descendant of the Goines family, one of two of the most prominent families in Rosewood before the 1923 Rosewood Massacre, the other being the Carrier family. Angela's mother was a survivor of the massacre. Her name is Sarah Lexi Jane Goines. She was three years old when she escaped the massacre with her own mother, Angela's great-grandmother, who Lexi Jane was in part named after, Angela Goines, was being interviewed by historian and archivist Sherry Sherrod Dupree. I truly appreciate every person who listens to this podcast. I really do. It makes me incredibly happy that so many of you share my passion for African-American history, particularly the history of some of America's earliest Black communities, which defy the stereotypes of African-Americans of the era. History that illuminates the cyclical legacy of struggle and triumph, struggle and triumph that we often see in these places. Struggle and triumph are such consistent themes in the Black experience in America, where together they've often engendered a sense of hope that grows from the prospects of possibility and opportunity. Having said that, I know that the subject matter on this podcast can be really heavy sometimes. I know it makes me feel fascinated, proud, angry, sad, and so much more. I want you to know that this podcast is about far more than the tragedies that some of these early Black communities experienced. Yes, the tragedies draw attention to these communities. It makes us take notice. But once that attention is fixed on these communities, we begin to discover worlds that many of us had little to no knowledge of previously. Too often, the stories of these worlds have been hidden or distorted, and the narrative controlled by people who have very little connection to or understanding about them. Yet, so much of our world today exists because of the worlds of our past. Similarly, Rosewood was far more than another Black community that was massacred. It was a world of real people with names and lives, hopes and dreams, problems, pain and fear. These people knew struggle and triumph and everything in between. Those who destroyed Rosewood may have tried to erase every sign of Black life. Still, not even the erasure of Black life that has become a centuries-old sport can erase all that Rosewood was. The fact is, far too few people have any knowledge of what kind of community Rosewood really was before it was destroyed. So we're going to take this episode to explore Rosewood, the community, before we explore Rosewood, the massacre, in the next episode. To do that, we'll first turn to historian and archivist Sherry Sherrod Dupree, whom you first heard from in the beginning of this episode interviewing Rosewood descendant Angela Goines. 
So much of what we know today about Rosewood is based on the oral history of survivors and descendants of Rosewood. Dupree has spent many years working with Rosewood families to gather this history, including some information you will not find in history books. I would be called a historian and I'm also an archivist and I do quite a bit of writing so I do editing sometimes I do editorials whatever <laughs> so you are a historian and archivist and still very much steeped in this work you still run the the Rosewood Heritage Heritage Foundation Foundation okay I'm still working with the Rosewood Heritage Foundation yes so I've been with the foundation since its inception so from what you know from what the families told you sort of how did Rosewood come to be who who was it settled by Rosewood was settled based on family history in 1824 but based on the state of Florida was not founded until 1945. And so there were African-Americans in that area, Rosewood family members who had come to work in the lumber industry during the early days. And those were going family members, G-O-I-N-S, Bradley's, Robinson's and other family names. But truly we have listed on our shield 1845, because that's when Florida was actually founded. And so we have to use 1845 as our beginning date. But you know, in the beginning, it was whose town? They didn't know whose town it belonged to, our town. They had different names for it before it was named Rosewood. So what sort of industry brought people to, to Rosewood? The lumber industry, the turpentine industry, the logging the work industry, this was what African-Americans were used to doing. And there was quite a bit of work in that area. So people gravitated to where work was to be found. You mentioned the Goines. Edward Goines, is it? He was sort of the patriarch yes. of one of the most prominent families in Rosewood? That's exactly true, yes. Can you tell me a little bit about him? Well, he came in from North Carolina. Some said that he came from the Fayetteville area, Fayetteville, North Carolina area, and found that there was a chance for growth in Florida. They came in and they set up what was known as turpentine steels. When they came in, they came in with money and they were able to start their own businesses and to bring additional family members and friends with them. These were educated people for that day, they were well-educated. They had science backgrounds, history backgrounds. So they came with some knowledge as to how to proceed and get their families operating in a new community. Fascinating. And he owned quite a bit of land as well, correct? Exactly, yes. Once they got here, they were able to purchase land and to uh, set up homestead, as they call it, in the area of Rosewood. There were roughly, there were eight to 13 strong families in that area. 
And then when I say strong families, these were people that got together and used their resources, pooled their resources to build a strong community. And so another prominent family was the carriers, correct? Yes, the carriers were very prominent. Yes, that's right. What do you know about them? What can you tell us about the carriers? Well, uh, the carrier family came in about the same time as the Goins family. And it's true, you're thinking about a carrier in the sense of involved in the movie itself. But going back to the carriers, they were early educators. Again, these were people, or men especially, who knew how to make a living for themselves. They were furriers, so they knew how to trap animals. They knew how to fish. So they had a lot of skills that they could bring to the community. And... The rapid economic growth that we saw in Rosewood after the Civil War, was that mostly due to the turpentine and the lumber industry? Were there other economic drivers? After the Civil War, Civil War was over in 1865. So at that time, many of these people were uh, more in tune to having a better lifestyle. And so after 1865, there was a bank in Rosewood. They had a water tower in Rosewood. It was a town. It had three churches. It had an educational program. They had pipe organs down there. They had made pianos. They had two-story homes, things that others did not have in the community range, white, I'm speaking. And this was a threat to them. They could not have that. But what made it prominent was the railroad, because the train came through every day, coming and going. So when you have a means of getting your product out, and that was the railroad, then you can make money. And this is what they did. They shipped everything out and in. And they used what they call catalogs and so forth to get items in to help each other. Another thing, too, a lot of your Masonic organizations were very prominent, like your Masons. And Eastern Stars, all of those. And so they were members of those, plus the AME Church, the Baptist churches. They were all in that area. And these people were people that were outgoing. They expressed learning. So they had their own teachers down there, their own ministers. Several of them were ministers. And they were able to uh, progress in a, a very positive way. So what was the racial makeup of Rosewood by, say, 1900? There were a few white people there. At one time, one of the sheriffs had had lived in that community and a few other whites, but it was predominantly African-American. From the beginning? Yes. Because in 1845, that would mean that they were free before the Emancipation Proclamation? You got it. You Absolutely. But you have to keep in mind, a lot of them were Indians and they were Seminole Indians. So the Seminole Indians and the African-Americans had worked together. And then two, we have to talk about color. A lot of the goings could pass for white and they did pass for white. That was how they were able to get some of their monies to do some of the activities that they did. They were not very dark African-American people. So therefore, those men would go out at night and meet with other white men. They didn't know that they were Black and find out what was going on business-wise. 
and they will go to Jacksonville and places and stay a couple of days, three or four days and learn about the banking system and other activities and bring those skills back to help each other. Plus they were tied in in the different Masonics and the Masonics were moving to build communities. So, so, yes, a lot of them, especially in the Goins family, passed for white. So they were a free black community, so to speak, of mixed heritage prior to the end of slavery in the Deep South, which is very unusual. Very unusual. And then the Seminole Indians had cohabitated in the area and they were very close. And another thing that has not been brought out was the role of the Indians in helping them to escape in 1923. Because if it had not been for them in that area, in those woods, a lot of them wouldn't have gotten out. And see, the Indians too could pass for white in the sense of their visual and looks when you're fighting in the woods. I didn't even hear that in the book. (laughs) You won't, because they didn't talk about it. But family members will sit and tell you about those stories. Gertrude, who was one of the wives there, uh, was part Indian. A lot of them were part Indian. And then, like I said, there was a mixture there. And because of their color and because of their educational backgrounds and being able to assimilate, especially at night, that's when the men would travel to Jacksonville and to other places and, and to mingle with others to learn what was going on. And so once they found out how to maneuver, they would bring that history back and use it in their own communities. Many of them had more than one IDs. So they may have had one name during the day and another name at night. Wow. This is some very interesting stuff. You won't read about this in the books, the history books. No, it was not in the history books, but you talk to family members and they'll sit down and and share some of that after they know you for a while. They're not going to talk to you about it right away. But those were some of the things that helped that community to become strong at an early time in history. We talked about the racial climate in Rosewood, but how about Levy County, right? So what about the surrounding community of Rosewood prior to the massacre? What was the racial climate like there? Well, you have to realize that you're dealing with a rural community. And Levy County was very rural, mostly uh, woodland. I went back and uh, tried to find more history on the early Rosewood, which is difficult to find other than by talking with family members. In Levy County, as you asked me, Levy County was started during the time of the Seminole Wars between 1835 and 1842. So Levy County was also used during the war as a war department area. And I'm talking now more towards Cedar Key, which was on the beach, on the waterfront there. It was the principal landing place for troops during the time of getting supplies in. And so there was Fort Fanning there and another Fort Fort Waukesha. And they were able to bring in military activities in the 1840s, where Rosewood was just nine miles away. And so that brought in a few people as well. Now, being that Rosewood was located in Levy County, they were able to receive some of the services from Cedar Key. Another thing I want to stress to you that the early sheriffs of Levy County, starting with 1845, coming all the way up to 1923, that sheriff was Bob Walker, but the early sheriffs 
a few of them were African American, but they had Indian mixed blood. So I don't know how you would describe them, but they were there and they were very active in that area. So it was a mixture there. When you talk about the whites, yes, there were whites there, but you had to see how they fitted in to being white. Were they white, white? Were they white with Indian blood? Did they come from some other location here into this area? And like I said, many of those African-Americans definitely passed for non-blacks. Very interesting. It was a different community than a typical Black community. Sure. You know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, I was aware that Blacks and Seminoles did work together during that period, especially before the Emancipation Proclamation, especially those Blacks who were escaping slavery from elsewhere like Georgia. I didn't know, Mm -hmm. however, that, I guess founders of Rosewood also were working with the Seminole or also had close relationships and were part Seminole or Native American. So that's interesting. There's an Indian shell mount that is between Rosewood and Cedar Key. And that was an area where thousands of Indians lived. And that was very close to Rosewood in the sense. So the, the Indian connection had been there all along. Another thing I must say is that the Seminole newspaper did the best coverage of the Rosewood Massacre. And part of the movie was based on the Seminole newspaper. The Seminole Chief Billy, who was a female, said, look, if you all are going to do the Rosewood story, we know it. And the Indians knew it. And they knew it by memory because it's passed down from one generation to the next. So the Seminole Indians put two detectives on Rosewood when we started with the Rosewood bill and so forth prior to it. And then each of their newspapers featured a newspaper article dealing with the history of Rosewood. So all of that was ignored. Wow. The Indians, and Chief Billy now, I think she's now deceased, but the Indians, the Seminole Indians know the story and they can give you details that we don't know as African-Americans. Huh. So during this time after the Civil War, the Ku Klux Klan were almost like a defunct organization, and they began to see a resurgence in the early 1900s. And I wonder, in your opinion, how the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan contributed to the racial dynamics that ultimately created the conditions for the Rosewood Massacre to occur? Well, let's go back. Yes, and you're absolutely right. The Ku Klux Klan was paramount in the South, not only in the South, but all over the country. Let's go back to the uh, movie Birth of a Nation that came out in 1915. That movie went global and it went to the White House and it gave people the okay to come out and be racist again. It added to, that was 1915. That movie really started a lot of activity. Then after that, you had World War I to end, 1918, the ending of the war, and these African-Americans were coming back home. And then in 1919, you had the Red Scare, which was out of Chicago and other locations. They were building up to what was getting ready to happen here because each situation made it easier for them to talk about it and to carry out their evil deeds. 
And so you had 1919, and then you had the great migration patterns going along because people had to leave the South by night or however to work their way north or to other family members. So you had a lot going on. And then two, you have to keep in mind that was before 1929 when you had the crash, the stock market crash. So you're talking 21, which was dealing with the Black Wall Street, 21, we could see that. And then, well, even before that, 1920, you could see the Okoye massacre. And they were angry because African-Americans were able to vote. That was one of the issues. Another issue, African-Americans were moving forward too fast. And you can't move past what we have already done. So therefore, they felt that the African-Americans need to be put in their place, whatever that means, <laughs> back into their place. And so the anger was still building. And of course, with all the issues in the banking industry, you know, they had the Freedmen's Bank that came out during the time of Reconstruction. And this allowed Blacks to be able to start saving money and to start organizing themselves. Education was paramount. Your Black colleges and your early schools were getting in place. And that was a strong hold that they did not want because during slavery, you couldn't learn to read and write. You couldn't do any of the skills that we're talking about. So this was saying, I'm losing control. We must get our control back. How do we get our control? We take it. And that's what started it. And then you had riots and lynches everywhere, mobs. And it was being sanctioned by your legal authorities because they were part of it, too. They wanted to maintain their rights, the white man's rights, so to speak, and not other cultural rights. And therefore, we came up with 20, 21, and then 23, Rosewood. But even before that, you had riots in all over the country. And people were getting killed for no reason at all. Not only just the riots, but massacres, right, as well, or what they called white capping, where they might run Black people out of their communities. They had no way to pay their taxes, so then their land could be sold for pennies on the dollar, and then they could take that land from them if they didn't outright steal it. Absolutely. You're telling the truth. Now, with Rosewood, many of those people had paid their taxes through 1924. So these people had money. Oh. oh, yeah. And they had paid the insurances on their land and on their housing areas down there through 1924 because we did some of those insurance records. The Goins, like Edward Goins, and some of the records there of property ownership disappear after 1925 or something. Right. The records disappeared. For Levy County, I could go back and find some of the Cedar Key records, but I could not find anything basically on Rosewood. Well, the records are supposed to go to the federal government, right? Your census records and so forth. Well, some of the census records we were able to get because they did go there and they couldn't get their hands on it. But everything that was statewide pretty much was removed permanently. Some say the courthouse burned down. Uh, whatever, whatever the reasons are, those records disappeared. A few records we were able to find through Gainesville and through other means, 
of records. A few I got out of Ocala, but very, very few. Most of them were destroyed. We'll turn to the first person to ever write a dissertation on Rosewood, University of Florida professor Dr. Edward Gonzalez Tennant. Hi, I'm Edward Gonzalez Tennant. I'm a lecturer at the University of Central Florida. And my dissertation research, which was based at the University of Florida, focused on Rosewood. And so that includes the 1923 riot or massacre that destroyed the community. But also, I think I approached this a little differently as an archaeologist. I was very interested in sort of looking at the history before Rosewood, before the events of 1923. So in some ways, that's how I got interested in this was as an archaeologist, you know, I have these sorts of tools that I can use to explore the past, but then just as a human being living in the 21st century and sort of wanting to address these historical legacies of, you know, nationwide patterns of injustice, Rosewood, which was right sort of almost literally down the road from the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida, just out towards the Gulf an hour, really proved to be sort of this, this really important area and site and event where I could kind of wed those two interests. And so I arrived in 2005, I spoke to descendants, I spoke to other researchers, found out there are a lot of things, a lot of questions that people still had, many of which I, I felt archaeology and how archaeologists approach the past could provide answers for. But then also kind of the final like push or impetus to really take this on as my dissertation was the fact that in looking at what other people had done, I realized that even at the University of Florida, prior to this, and this was only, you know, 10 plus years ago, no other graduate student in history, anthropology, no MA, no PhD thesis or dissertation had been written on Rosewood. So it felt like there was this huge gap in the, the research. And so for me, it was, you know, it was really one of those kind of, you know, I, I sort of hesitate to call it, you know, like a perfect storm or something, but it provided me a perfect opportunity to bring together my research skills, my personal interests, and do something that I felt could, you know, make an impact locally, but also maybe regionally and, and nationally. And what year was your dissertation, if you don't mind me asking? No, that's what, yeah. So I completed it in 2011. Okay, gotcha. So really groundbreaking work, actually. That must feel really good. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's groundbreaking. I think it feels good. It's one of those things where, you know, archaeologists, now this is changing, like with Tulsa and other sites, archaeologists are becoming, if not involved, sometimes major players or actors in understanding these histories. 15 years ago, that had not happened. And in fact, over the years, trying to explain to people why an archaeologist not only had this interest, but felt they could, you know, contribute some new information, 
that was something that I had to spend a lot of time sort of convincing other archaeologists, other academics, researchers, and the public that there were still questions that could be asked and answered, and archaeology would be one way of, of providing some of those answers. So for people who don't understand exactly what archaeology is, can you please explain how you use your field of study to learn more about an incident, an episode such as Rose? Sure, yeah. So I'm a particular kind of archaeologist, a historical archaeologist, which means we tend to look in the historical period. And while that differs around the world, we have some unifying themes of study And so things like colonialism, things like the modern world sort of unite what we do. So generally speaking, we tend to work in the last few centuries, really sort of after Europe begins exploring, quote unquote, slash enslaving, colonizing other parts of the world. Those encounters, which, of course, are integral for understanding the present, that's kind of what we do as historical archaeologists. So we use three data sets pretty routinely. Obviously, and unsurprisingly, we use artifacts, right? So stuff we dig up out of the ground. But we also use documentary records, and we tend to use them in ways that other disciplines may not think to use them, right? Particularly with an emphasis bringing them together for like landscape studies, how landscapes change over time. This is something that has been really useful in Rosewood. And then finally, we also, and I think this will come as a surprise, We also make use of oral testimony, oral history pretty regularly. Bringing these three data sets together allow us to illuminate those hidden histories, those forgotten or really erased, right? Intentionally erased histories. So what did you find? So a number of, I guess, different things. So I also work with like computer mapping and remote sensing technologies, so GIS or geographic information systems working with LIDAR, satellite imagery. And so bringing all this together, for instance, the documentary records, one of the main things, or I think for me, one of the main outputs was reconstructing Rosewood's sort of landscape for a 50-year period. So going through thousands of property deeds, reconstructing the meets and bounds for hundreds of them over a 40 to 50-year period, really from kind of the, the settling of this part of Levy County, which is taking place in the mid to late 1800s up until the 1920s. So being able to pair that with things like death records, the census, both the state and federal census, and the oral histories, many of which were collected with survivors in the 90s. And then, of course, some collected by myself, sometimes with the same people in the 2000s. And so what starts to emerge from all of that is the development of Rosewood. So we can start to look at the community as something with a 50 plus year history, not just sort of this moment where something was destroyed, but understanding it as a much more complex, really realistic and living, you know, sort of living thing. And then, you know, outside of that, when descendants reach out, which, you know, they do from time to time. And so just recently, I've had descendants over the last few few months, last year, I guess now, reach out and they know they had relatives, they had their names, and I was able to provide them with copies of the marriage certificates for their great-grandparents, death certificates, also records from the county that shows one member of the family didn't actually move that far away and opened up a store in the same county a year later. Then you get out of the 20s and 30s and you get into these individuals, these descendants, you start to get into their living memory or the living memory of the parents they talk to. And you finally sort of bring that past and the present you bring them together. And that's 
I mean, I think as a historical archaeologist, that's always the goal is finding a way to connect the past and present. And then, of course, we've been doing archaeology out there, primarily limited testing. So we're doing some excavations. We're doing a lot of ground penetrating radar surveys. So like at the cemetery. So we've been able to map unmarked burials, dozens of them at the Rosewood Cemetery. You know, so what we're finding out is really we're just filling in the picture of a long term community and all the nuance that comes with that. So I guess my question is, what have you learned through your research that perhaps wasn't known 10 or 20 years prior to it? Probably a number of things. What I'm hoping comes out of this is an appreciation that what was destroyed in 1923 was a large, multi-generational community. And of course, what goes away when something like that is destroyed or displaced is all the wealth that's accumulated. And that doesn't mean, right, that Rosewood is necessarily a wealthy community. But if you're an African-American in 1920s America and you own your own property, you own your own business, imagine what that would have meant for your grandchildren had they been able to inherit any of that, even just empty property, right? And that all goes away. And then, of course, you know, other things we learn, we learn the placement of structures so we can sort of go out with descendants and I've done this and sort of like their grandparents are named such and such. We know they owned this piece of property. We can do archaeology. We can look at different data sets. I can in many ways point at a piece of ground and say that's where your family, your ancestors lived. Not to mention give them a better idea of the cemetery layout, the dimensions, all of these sorts of questions that I think for a lot of people you take them for granted, right? So I was just looking at the Rosewood Heritage and VR project, the interactive history portion of it. This is a website that details your research. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And so all of these models on the website are the reconstruction that you were just talking about, I'm assuming. Yeah, the virtual reconstruction, the virtual Rosewood, or the Rosewood and interactive history, which is what I'm building now or working on now. This is the idea that we can basically bring all of these different data sets together into a virtual reconstruction and sort of in a 3D interactive and immersive way, deliver all of that content that I might otherwise deliver in an article, a book or a public presentation, but instead make it more of an engaging experience. I mean, it's just, it's so, I'm geeking out because it's so hard to imagine. You have bits and pieces, but when I'm looking at your models, for example, of the placement of certain structures, and I would encourage anybody listening to actually look at this as well, because it's fascinating. You get to see more of the way people lived and you get more of a feel of the community and it really does have this communal feel as opposed to everybody's kind of, you know, in their own home kind of thing. And that's what a lot of the survivors would talk about is maybe I think it was like 25 homes or something like that, but it was this cohesive community. And I don't know, it just, it's like almost eerie to look at it. So I think when you go to this website, you can you get an appreciation for exactly what you just explained and the research that you're talking about. And gosh, it must be really fascinating or I don't know, emotional for some of the descendants and survivors to see 
these models as well. Has that been your experience? So, well, yes. When I was talking to descendants, their allies, their advocates, you know, groups like the Rosewood Heritage Foundation or the Real Rosewood Group, you know, I would talk to them. And obviously, we all share an interest in trying to make this history accessible to the next generation, however we define that and whatever we mean by that. And so, you know, in several conversations with many of these individuals, that was the theme. How do we make it accessible? So I rather flippantly suggested, why don't we virtually reconstruct the whole town? Completely unaware of exactly how much work that would involve. You know, when you're talking about seeing the community, experiencing it, looking at what life was like in the 19 teens and 20s in rural Florida, as a historical archaeologist, that's something that I felt was extremely important to convey, right? So understanding that a community could be spatially separate, but yet still cohesive is something that I think the virtual reconstruction, that's an idea to bring home, right? Or, or drive home. Talking to descendants, seeing them, you know, there's obviously an age thing here, right? The last survivors, like Mary Hall Daniels and Robbie Morton, who were alive when we started this work, seemed less interested in sort of the virtual reconstructions, you know, and maybe that's an age thing, or maybe I hadn't made the virtual reconstructions look real enough, you know. Um, did, did they remember what Rosewood looked like before it was burned down? I mean, I would say that obviously some of the individuals that Maxine Jones's group, like Larry Rivers and, and Thomas Dye in the 90s, who Michael DeOrso interviewed, you know, I know Maxine Jones and Larry Rivers, they're other researchers, and I've reached out to them. But, you know, when they were speaking to survivors and interviewing them in the early 90s, there's amazing detail in there, right? But you also had people then, some of them were in their teens when they were in Rosewood. The survivors I was able to talk to in the late 2000s, you know, who passed away in the 2000s or 2010s, they were both, I think Mary Hall Daniels was three, Robbie Morton was seven or eight. So Mary Hall Daniels didn't remember, right? For her, and then as an academic, this was fascinating. We sort of in, in her and her recollections and her oral histories, we see really the creation of an oral tradition, right? She's really relating as a second generation. I mean, she's sort of that bridge. She is a survivor. She was physically present in Rosewood. The census and property records all verify that. But she's three, right? And so 100, all oh, 90 plus years later, I mean, nobody relies on a three-year-old to remember the spatial layout of their community, what their house looked like. But, you know, Robbie Morton had more of that because she was seven or eight. But again, you know, you're asking somebody, I mean, I'm in my 40s and thinking about when I was seven or eight is very hard to remember anything in any sort of structured way. But she obviously, I also didn't have that traumatic experience. So some things were literally sort of, you know, firm in her mind. And so, you know, she had some terrifying experiences and stories that she could relate, but, you know, their views, views from when she's leaving and sort of peeking out the back of a car or a wagon. But where did that take place? And, you know, that stuff is, is lost. Were you able to use any of the accounts that the survivors gave perhaps when Maxine Jones and the other researchers were doing their study to help with the reconstruction? Absolutely. Yeah. So many of them, particularly the survivors who remembered, right? I'm, you know, I'm a teenager, I'm 20 and I'm living here and it's destroyed. 
So in terms of the spatial layout of Rosewood, that was not a question they were asking a lot of the interviewees in the 90s. There's one, a white man, Ernest Parham, they interviewed. He delivered ice to Rosewood maybe daily, right? He probably had a map of the community in his head. And, you know, you can't fault anyone for not thinking to ask about that, but it's one of those sorts of questions that it could have been really valuable to hear about. So the spatial layout, not so much, but what houses look like? How many stories are they? Are they, you know, are they painted? What colors are they? What was inside of them? Many of us do have those memories, even as young children. And so that's one of the, that's a really valuable aspect in terms of reconstructing, because obviously this is a particular kind of architectural style. It's called a cracker architecture, right? So it, it's wooden framed houses on basically stone supports, wooden supports, right? The Florida cracker is a cultural sort of, I know cracker has a different connotation in other parts of the country, but here it'd be akin to like hillbilly, or, you know, Appalachian or Ozark folks, right? So largely lower class or poor whites engaged in farming, agrarian activities, cattle ranching, especially for crackers was important. So there's cuisine, there's folklore, all of this stuff associated with it. And one of the things that's associated with it is a local or a regional variant of architecture, right? It built for hot, humid environments. So wooden houses with tall roofs on rock and wood supports. The reason I'm belaboring this is that doesn't leave a lot in the No, no, actually, literature. that was going to be my next question. I was literally going to ask you, I know it's very hard to talk in pictures, but if you could describe for listeners exactly how you see Rosewood based on your virtual reconstruction. So I see Rosewood as being an economically diverse community. We know that there were different businesses there. Right. And when I say different businesses, I mean like somebody owned a store. There were naval stores, which basically refer to like turpentine industry, timber industries, anything that you can use to make or build ships or that are useful for sailing. That's not surprising. You're close to the, the coast. Right. And, you, and Cedar Key, for a lot of it, history, you know, shipping and, and well, even today. Right. Fishing, shell fishing is a big part of the economy. So I see that. I mean, looking at different records, you know that before 1890s, the freezes that hit all of Florida, there were orange groves in Rosewood. We know that that's recorded. So there's market gardens because we see people's businesses or employment recorded in the census and other places as market gardening. So, you know, there's a mix of houses, there's industries. We know there's turpentine stills there. We know there are sawmills, maybe they're portable and small, but they're there orange groves, market gardens, a train depot, a post office. I mean, the list starts to build until if you have a, a picture in your head, almost of like what an old West town was like, because the architecture would have actually been similar in this part of Florida, particularly in the 1870s and even into the early 20th century, this is the frontier. I mean, this is, this is frontier Florida. And so maybe not like the Hollywood movies of everything's crammed next to each other, but if you take many of those same elements and scatter them along a railway over the course of a mile and then sort of have houses, farms, ranches scattered all around those buildings, that's when you start to get a picture, I think, in your mind of what Rosewood would have been. And so a huge area, two square miles, most of it owned by people of uh, African descent and a few whites who were still there. 
you know, but by certainly 1900 and certainly 1923, it's almost majority African-American. There's only a handful of white families living there. And obviously those engagements, I think, are something that's largely forgotten in the present. We tend to think of the past in these very black and white terms. Rosewood's neighboring community of Sumner is always represented as the white town that provided the white mob. And while that's not incorrect, Summoner's population may have approached something like 50% African-American. So these are mixed communities. There's likely individuals here with indigenous or Native American ancestry, since we know Maroons, free Black and free Indian communities moved to the area in the decades before that. I mean, it's just an incredible. And so this is something that's coming out more and more. I mean, and that's where archaeology, I mean, obviously, when we're talking about these communities, we're talking about you know, seminal groups that are moving through the area from the panhandle down south, where obviously descendants live to this day. They also live in the Bahamas, like the Red Bays area. And so, you know, I, I think that's also, you know, working in the south. Obviously, the south has a lot of representations about it. But I think one of the representations we do a bad job of remembering in the present is how mixed the region often was and how that meant that sort of at the everyday level, particularly among folks of the same class. In the next episode, We'll explore the events of New Year's Day, 1923, that caused the Rosewood Massacre, as well as what became of the survivors in the days, months, and years that followed. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. And be sure to check out our website, www.dreamsofblackwallstreet.com, so you can stay up to date on all of our latest episodes. And for my history podcast fans, might I make another suggestion that you may enjoy a podcast called Pontifax. And in the words of the creator, quote, a lighthearted, only slightly blasphemous papal history podcast ranking the popes from Peter to Francis. Mm-hmm.